0: This time? Thanks. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. You know, we're coming to the concluding verses of the book of Galatians. And as we come to these closing thoughts, What we really see in the sixth chapter is the Apostle Paul talking about what it means to walk in the Spirit. That's what he closed the fifth chapter with. Now so far we've seen in the first verse that part of what it means to walk in the Spirit is that we are to find a brother who is errant, who has gone off the path And we're to seek to restore such a one, bring them back into the fold. Not stomp and kick them while they're down, but encourage them to pursue that relationship with the Lord that they so desperately need. We've also seen in the second verse that we have a responsibility to one another, that we need to carry one another's burdens. And that's a responsibility that we should take seriously, while also understanding that there are some things that we must do ourselves and carry our own loads, according to the fifth verse. Then we come to the sixth verse. And as we come to the sixth verse, some commentators look at this and they say, well, why is this in here? Where it says, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with the instructor. Seems sort of out of place because then in verse 7, he starts talking about sowing and reaping and things of that nature. Was this just a random thought that Paul threw into the mix? Or does it fit into the flow of the context? And I would submit to you that it fits perfectly into the flow of the context. Because what we find here in the sixth verse is a principle that we need to follow. And that principle is this. We need to support the work of the Lord. You see, what he's talking about in the sixth verse are those who dedicate their lives to the study of the Word, be it a pastor, a missionary, be it a servant who has poured himself into seeing that the teaching of God's truth is carried on full time. That we as Fellow believers have a responsibility to support such a person in their work. Now, you know what always happens when we talk about finances and support and giving in the church? You have some visitor who comes, and the last time they were in church, they heard a message on giving. And so all they think that goes on is, man, all they ever talk about in churches is giving. Listen, it's the next verse in the text that I'm covering And we preach the whole counsel of God's Word around here. So that's why it's being addressed. But I want us to look carefully at this verse. In our English Bibles, it says, Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, if we had Greek Bibles with us this morning, it's interesting. You know what the verse starts out with in the original Greek? The word share. And here's the idea. The Word of God is telling us with putting the word share at the beginning of the verse with emphasis that we have a responsibility to support one another. Those who full-time teach the Word of God have the spiritual responsibility of supporting people with God's truth. You know, God has given pastors and teachers and missionaries to the church in order to bring them along to maturity, we're told in the book of Ephesians. There's an important role for the Word of God to be shared. And I can speak from personal testimony that there's a lot of work in preparing the Word of God to share with other people. When I was in seminary, I was a full-time seminary student. I worked at UPS from about 2 in the morning until 7.30 in the morning unloading trucks. And then I pastored a church. And let me tell you, when I tried to prepare a message with that kind of schedule, the messages probably suffered. I wasn't able to put the time in. As a matter of fact, some of those messages were probably what I had just learned in seminary that week. So those patient souls in that church put up with me not being able to put in a lot of time into my study. But then when I went into the work full time and I was able to take the time to really dig into the word and let the word speak to me. And because of the support of other people, I was able to do that full time. What a difference. It brought a richness to my study. And hopefully the sermons that I delivered were of greater quality because I was able to spend the time in prayer and in preparation that's necessary. What the Word of God is telling us here in this sixth verse is that those who receive that instruction can share the material blessings and other blessings that God has brought into their life with the individual who instructs. Now what's really interesting in this text is the word for instruct. The same Greek word is used for the instructor and those who receive the instruction. And it's a word that we get our word catechism from. Now, what's a catechism? Catechism is an orderly teaching of doctrine, of truth. It's a systematic teaching of God's truth. So, really, what this passage is referring to are those who systematically teach God's truth to others. It's their calling. It's their vocation. It's what God has called them to do in ministry to the church body. And what the Word of God is saying is we're to share with them. Now, the word for share is a word that means fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia, and many of you who are students of the Word have heard of koinonia. It's taking and participating in something with another person. So here's the idea. If they're dedicating themselves to God's work, then those who receive the instruction also dedicate themselves to the material support of those who invest their lives in that. That's the idea. But here, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't specifically say that they're to support only with their money. The Scripture says they are to share all good things with those who do the work of instruction. Now, what does he mean by all good things? All good things carries with it the idea of sharing encouragement with those who teach. You know what means the world to a person who's teaching the Word of God? Not when somebody just walks by and says, you know, good sermon. But more the idea, you know, I learned this from your message. My life changed in this way because of the teaching. And and I'm not just talking about those who share messages, but Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, all of them need that kind of feedback, that kind of encouragement. God calls us to express those things to those who have an impact on our lives. And we're to do it materially, but we're also to do it by words of encouragement. So this is what Scripture means when it says we're to share all good things with those who instruct. And you know this principle that spiritual instruction is an important part of our growth, but the principle that we are to support these financially is also brought out in many passages of Scripture. We're to share these good things I want you to look at a couple of passages of Scripture that talk about this material support idea. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, it says this, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, unfortunately, there are people who have abused this, Right? We know of the televangelists who have had the exorbitant lifestyles. Uh, they're, They're a blight on the church. They've caused cynicism. They've caused people to view people doing the work of ministry as those who are in it for the money. And that's wrong. That's excess. And that's caused many people to become disappointed in those who do the work of the Lord. But don't allow that to color your thinking because that is the extreme minority. Most people who do the work of the Lord do so really because they love the Lord, not for the love of money. Many fields would be more lucrative than ministry, but they choose to serve the Lord because they want to dedicate themselves and make the entire focus of their life the service of Jesus Christ. For those who do that, the Word of God is saying that they should be able to make a living doing that. And you know, I commend our church. Our church is very supportive of our missionaries, of their pastors. Our church, this is not a message that's coming because I think our church is deficient in some way. It's the next part of the passage. And it's something that we need to have perspective on. We need to understand that in doing this, we're being obedient to the Lord. We're taking the material things that God has entrusted to us, and we are using them for spiritual purposes. And here's the thing. Do you know that your finances and the way you manage them is a great indicator of where your priorities are? Think about it for a moment. In order for me to invest my money in something, I have to believe in it, right? I'm not going to take my money and direct it towards something that I think is a farce or a sham, right? I'm not going to take my money and invest it in something that is unimportant, that really doesn't matter. I'm going to take my money and invest it in things that I believe in, that I'm committed to. So when we take the material resources that God gives us, and we invest it in the things of the Lord, what we're saying is, I'm committed to the things of the Lord. It's a very real way for us, by faith, to take something that is tangible and invest it in the unseen. And that's why God calls us as believers to do it. Giving to the work of the Lord is really an extreme expression of faith, isn't it? because you're taking the things that He's given you and using it for things that you can't see. It's a wonderful, wonderful way of expressing our faith. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 also speaks to this, where it says this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And then I love the comparison in verse 18. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. Isn't that great? The Word of God comparing a pastor to an ox. I'll just leave that one alone. And then the final statement, the worker deserves his wages. God wants us to understand that the support of God's work and God's workers is an honorable thing. And God wants us to engage in that. Now, as we move on in the text, we come to the next part of the text. And here as we come to the seventh verse, if you've tuned me out on the giving, tune me in on this especially. Because what we find is the so-reap principle. And you know what we're going to find? In God's Word, the sow reap principle comes from the beginning all the way through to the end. In Genesis, it's a case study on sowing something and reaping something else. For instance, when we look in Scripture at the very first sin, what happened? Eve sowed to sin and Adam and Eve together engaged in that sin and then they reaped death and destruction. And really, when you do a study through the Old Testament and New Testament, what do you see? That some people invest their lives in the things of God and they find blessing. And some people invest their things in the, their lives in, in the things of the flesh and sin, and they find consequences. What we sow to, we will reap. And that's what the Scripture says. Look at the seventh verse. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Very simple verse, isn't it? Very straightforward. What's it communicating to us? First of all, if we discount the idea that what we sow, we will eventually reap, we're doing two things. Number one, we're deceiving ourselves. If I think, you know, I can get by with this, I can slide right past the consequences if I do something bad. We're completely deceived. Remember the story of Eve as she was in the garden and the serpent came to her and said, you won't die if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember that? What was he doing? He was deceiving Eve because he was telling her You won't find consequences for the action that you take, right? And that's a deception that Satan still uses every day. You can get away with it. It's not going to come back on you. That may happen to other people, but it won't happen to you. Deception. The word deception means misleading. And so, in this text, the scripture is warning us not to be deceived by the principles of sowing and reaping. Then something else. Verse 7 says, don't be deceived, and then it makes this statement, God cannot be mocked. Now, what does the scripture mean when it says God cannot be mocked? To mock God, the word mock is an interesting word in the original language. It means to turn your nose up at it. If we were to take the Greek word that's translated mock and just literally translate it, you know what it means? It means to turn your nose up at God. How does someone turn their nose up at God? Again, when it comes to the sow reap principle, we can disregard the idea that serving God brings blessings, and serving myself and sin. Brings consequences. And I'm not going to deal with them. I'm not going to think about them. I'm going to leave, live for the immediate. And I'm going to disregard consequences or blessings. Because I don't care what God says on this issue. That's the idea of mocking God. You see, it's not even sometimes an active rebellion that mocks God, sometimes it's a passive resistance to where I just say I'll do my own thing and worry about what God says later. God does not want us to live like that. Now, what does it mean when it says sowing and reaping? If we look at the immediate context, the idea of sowing and reaping could pertain to financial things. As I said earlier, what we invest our material goods in definitely will show where our priorities are. So it could mean that a person who sows all of their money to serve themselves, to buy the neatest gadget, to take care of all of the whims and desires of my life, that if I sow that, I'm going to reap exactly what I've invested in. Things that will wear out, break down, who have no lasting value. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew Matthew 6.19 says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what the Scripture is saying to us in this, if this verse is pertaining to the immediate context about sharing good things with those who instruct, is this, look, if I don't give to the work of the Lord and I take it and use it for myself, then really what I'm investing in are things that wear out, break, break, have no lasting value. But when I invest in the work of the Lord, guess what? I can see things that have lasting value. Think about this. We support a missionary. That missionary wins one soul to Christ. You have made a difference on eternity with that one soul. Where the latest iPhone will be obsolete in two years. That missionary has done something that lasts for eternity and you've partnered with them. Do you see the idea? Eternal things. Now, I believe this principle not only pertains to the immediate context of verse 6, but I believe that it pertains really to the context of of the entire latter part of Galatians. Remember in chapter five, in verse 16 it said this, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict to one another so that you will not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The scripture is telling us right there That there's a difference. We can either go by way of the flesh, or we can go by way of the Spirit. And then what Paul begins to do in the context of this passage that we find here in Galatians chapter 6, is in the 8th verse, he begins to move into this idea of sowing to the sinful nature and sowing to the Spirit. So let's look at it. First, let's look at sowing to the sinful nature, and we'll see that that leads to destruction, or as it's also translated, corruption. Verse 8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Now, when we look at this translation in the NIV, the word that's translated destruction is also translated in many other versions as corruption. Corruption. Let's look at some of those translations. In the New American Standard, it says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Then you have the New King James Version, which is essentially the same, For he who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And then the English Standard Version, very much the same. The one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. I liked the uh, complete Jewish Bible's translation. The one who, those who keep sowing in the field of their old nature in order to meet its demands will eventually reap ruin. So what's the idea of corruption or ruin? The idea of corruption or ruin is this. It's something that is subject to decay. Remember the passage we saw where Jesus said, don't invest in the things of this world where moth and rust will destroy. That's the idea of corruption. Investing in temporal things and making that our priorities is investing in things that are destined to wear out. They won't last forever. It doesn't matter how well-built it is. It doesn't matter how protected it is. They don't last. Because they are of this world. They're wearing out. They're winding down. They're going to break. That's the idea of corruption. So, what does the sin nature want me to do? If, as we saw in chapter 5, the sin nature is against the things of the Spirit, the sin nature will never want me to invest in spiritual things. That's the idea. Never. It will get me so distracted by the material things of this world that the spiritual things will always play second fiddle. And by the way, this not only applies to material things, it it applies to our time. It applies to our affections, those things that we look at that we just think about all the time and desire. It applies to a lifestyle that says... I will satisfy myself in the immediate, even if it's wrong, because I want it now, rather than waiting. This is why God warns us in His Word about sowing and reaping. The entire Old Testament is a case study in many who sowed to the flesh and reaped the consequences, isn't it? When you look at the nation Israel, what would happen? God would bless them. They would begin to forget about God because they became distracted by the people around them and the things around them. And then that would remove the blessing of God. And as a nation, what would happen? They would suffer, turn back to God, regain perspective, and the whole cycle would start all over again. And you know what I find in my own life is it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy to forget that the eternal is what really counts. You see, the things of the flesh are right there. They're measurable. You feel it. You sense it. The things of the Spirit are very often unseen. And therefore, they're very easily forgotten. That's why in Proverbs, Solomon reminds us, Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Now remember, the simple are those who simply disregard God. The fools are those who shake their fist at God and spurn Him. And what the Word of God is telling us is, sowing to that kind of lifestyle reaps destruction, corruption, brings bad things. What about sowing to the Spirit? Look at the last part of that eighth verse. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that will reap destruction or corruption. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, let me tell you what this verse is not saying. It is not teaching a works salvation, that if I do the things of the Spirit, I earn eternal life. Paul has spent the entire book of Galatians tearing down that notion. So what I think he's really stating in this text is this. When we sow to the Spirit, in other words, when I invest my life in spiritual things, you know what God does? God brings about eternal blessings. I am investing in the things that last. These are the things that are associated with eternal life. Not the life that I've abandoned, but the life that I now pursue, the Spirit of God will lead us in the things that pertain to that eternal life. When we die, we won't be able to take our house with us, our car with us, our Facebook profile of over 2,000 friends, right? we won't be able to take anything with us that is not spiritual, right? And I want you to think about this. Our life here is but a moment. It's a flash in the pan. The older I get, the more I see that. When you look back and you say, I've, got, I've done more living than is ahead of me, reality kicks in. I've been with a lot of people who die. You know what they talk about on their deathbed? It sure isn't about their house or cars. It's about family. And if they're Christians, it's about faith. God wants us to understand that sowing to the Spirit is the only sowing that really makes sense. And if we think otherwise, we're deceived. And in essence, we're mocking God. So we as believers have a responsibility to invest ourselves in sowing to the Spirit. How do I sow in the Spirit? The principles that we saw right at the end of the fifth chapter of Galatians. Living by the Spirit. Verse 24. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit, but let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Keeping in step with the Spirit means I am committing my life to doing what the Spirit of God says. I am moment by moment yielding to His leadership in my life. That's sowing to the Spirit. Practically living out what the Spirit of God leads us to do in His Word, and as He interacts with us. This is what God wants us to do. Now, concluding thoughts. If I'm not sowing to the flesh, I'm sowing to the Spirit, how does that demonstrate itself? I think it's interesting that sowing and reaping is sandwiched in between doing good. Verse 6 says that you're to share good with your instructors. Verse nine tells us, let us not become weary in doing good, for in proper time we will harvest, reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Sowing to the Spirit means that I am involved in doing good. And what we find in the ninth verse as far as doing good is an important encouragement. You know what it is? We have to have stamina in sowing to good things. You know, sometimes it's hard to continue to do good. You get tired. Sometimes it means taking a stand that's going to be unpopular if you're committed to doing good, doesn't it? Sometimes it means you're going to meet opposition. If I would just go along to get along, this would go a lot easier. But I'm committed to doing good, so I can't do that. And that's tough. It's a very difficult thing to do good sometimes. And sometimes you feel tired, don't you? You get tired of people saying, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just get along? Why can't you just go with this? Sometimes, sowing good means I don't get what I want right when I want it. It means I've got to wait. Wait. I've got to wait on God. And that's tough. So you get weary of waiting sometimes. Feel like throwing in the towel. But here's the perspective. Don't become weary in doing good. Here's the perspective. For, at the proper time, we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. The proper time. I've found that the proper time isn't my time, it's God's time. And sometimes my time and God's time aren't in agreement. My time is for the good stuff, I'd like it done yesterday. But God's time is wait. But here's the thing. In God telling us to wait, He isn't tormenting us. He isn't looking at us and saying, I want to watch you squirm. God is not sadistic. The waiting that we must do on God is for our benefit. It teaches us dependence, trust. It teaches us that we're not in control, and some of us really need to learn that. But God is. So don't become weary because in the proper time, by faith, we trust that God will bring a harvest from the good that we've done. I watched a wonderful film on Netflix, of all things, the instant streaming thing on the computer, about William Carey, a missionary to India, You know, when he went to India, he lost his wife, he lost his child to disease. He labored in translating the word of God so that the Indian people could have a translation in their own language. He preached and worked and not a single convert for years. And he must have wondered during that time, what's happening here? I left my country. I lost my family. I'm going through all of this and I've seen no fruit. As a matter of fact, he met opposition, not just from the people of India, but from his own people and people in the Christian community who were saying, You're not getting results. But you know what God did? God did a work through him and the harvest eventually came. And I believe what I saw in India a few weeks ago was in part due to the work of people like William Carey where the harvest is still going on. That's eternity. Sometimes we have to wait. We can't grow weary. We have to stay the course. And even if it means that I have to suffer in order to do good, being willing to do that. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, do not lose heart, for outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now, this follows a passage where the Apostle Paul talked about how he had been beaten, how he had been stoned, By stones, by the way. How He had suffered persecution. How He had faced difficulty upon difficulty. And then look at the 17th verse. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the perspective, that eternal perspective that gives us the wherewithal to continue to do good, even when we become weary. And that's how God wants us to live. Walking in faith, waiting on Him, staying true to the good that He calls us to. Last thought, verse 10. We're to seek out others to do good to, especially believers. Now, notice what the 10th verse says. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now, what does the word opportunity mean? Does that mean that every time I see somebody who has a need, that I'm to run to it and meet that need? Is that possible? We can't do that, right? My goodness, and just the commercials that you see on TV, you would be bankrupt if you supported all of the needy opportunities that we have, right? You have to prioritize. You have to make decisions, right? That's realistic. There's not enough of us as individuals to go around. You just can't do it. Much as you'd like to, you can't. So you make a decision. What will I do good toward? You prioritize. You take opportunities that are presented to you, and in wisdom, you choose the ones that you'll support, either by your time or by your finances. That's the idea. But what the word opportunity does mean is this. It's a word that if we were to translate it literally means time. And what it's saying is this, while you have time on this earth, do good to all men. Be a person that is a channel through which the good of God flows into the lives of others. Enrich the lives of those around you in many ways. Encourage them. Don't be the person that drains and drags people down, but be the person that builds those around you up. Bring good to those around you. That's the idea. And God wants us to do this on a consistent basis. God wants us to live lives of good, doing good, participating in good, directing it toward those around us. That's a principle that we need to understand. I like the way Paul phrased this in Colossians. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. See, even in our speech, we can demonstrate good. And God wants us to invest ourselves in that kind of lifestyle. Paul said this in Ephesians, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. God wants us to take the opportunity that we have, this opportunity of life, and He wants us to live it in a way that's invested in the lives of other people. In other words, doing good is stepping outside myself and thinking about others. Their needs, how I can minister to them. (coughs) Final thought notice the last part of the 10th verse. We're to do good to all people, but then it says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now here it's talking about priorities. While I have a responsibility to all people, my first responsibility is to the family of God. If I'm living by walking in the Spirit, sowing to spiritual things, I'm going to invest my life and the good that I do into a community of believers. (coughs) It's easy to become disconnected. It's easy to just come in and sit in a pew on a Sunday morning and leave. Without investing myself in the community of believers. What God is saying to us in this passage is this My local fellowship of believers, the people that I'm going to rub elbows with, and that will cost of my time and energy, has to be my first priority. That's to be something I'm to commit myself to. By doing good to them. When you walk into church, do you ever pray, Lord, let me be a blessing to someone today. Let me encourage someone who might be down. Let me walk in here and just think outside myself how I can bless another person. That's the perspective that we're to come as we come and share in fellowship together. So let me encourage you. Think in those ways. And when you do, you're sowing to the Spirit and you're reaping things for eternal life. The sow-reap principle that we find in Galatians chapter 6 is as true today as the day that it was written. The question that we must ask ourselves, and I include myself in this, is what am I sowing to, mostly? What can I expect to reap? It's a sobering question, and it's a crucial question because it has long-lasting results. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that it is a reminder to us to have perspective. How easy it is for us to become deceived and to turn our noses up at the things that you reveal. God, let us be people who sow in a way that pleases you and not ourselves. Let us be people through which your good is expressed to others by the way we conduct ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.